brings back good memories. I have to actually um, really thank Tim for putting that together. I'm not a photo or slideshow type of person, so I was scrambling on the last minute and just threw what I had to Tim, and he put that together. And I have to also say that uh, that's just a very, very small part of the story. And Jim and Jan Cookson uh, have a ton of photos also that share more of their experience. Um, but what I want to do with you this morning, first of all, good morning. <laughs> it is so good to be back with you. I realized this morning as I was talking with Sal that uh, I think it's been at least six and maybe seven weeks since I've been in the pulpit. And so it is really great to be back. Uh, and I feel, I feel out of practice. And so I may, uh, we may stumble a bit this morning, and that's okay because we'll stumble together. Um, but what I want to do today in the time we have ne- next, next week, God willing, I'm going to begin a, a series on the Old Testament book of Jonah. Uh, God has really been stirring Jonah in me for quite some time. I'll share more of that next week. But, uh, but today what I want to do is just share a story or at least part of a story, Uh, a true story, my story, really about a bit of my story about the two weeks that I spent in Africa. Basically, what I want to do today is give a bit of testimony. Testimony is very, very important in the life of a church. I I want to testify to... God's goodness this morning and to what God has done for me. For me, this has been a whirlwind of a summer. From preparing for Africa to being in Africa to returning just in time for the church's celebration and send-off of Jeff and Andrea Gladstone to then stealing away some time with my family for vacation together um, before school began and the fall schedule uh, really took over. This whirlwind summer has meant that, that you and I, we, have not gotten much time together as a congregation. Graciously, you sent me to Africa uh, to Zambia to partner with Northrise University in serving the city of Indola. Uh, but, and though it's been six weeks since my return, today I just want to share a few highlights. And I've chosen a passage to kind of center our thoughts. And if you'll, you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 66. Psalm 66 is a psalm of invitation. In this psalm, we are invited to praise God, verses 1 through 4, to look back and see what God has done, verses 5 through 7, to rejoice in the faithfulness of God who never lets go of His people but brings us out of hardship to places of abundance. We find that in verses 8 through 12. 
to offer a sacrifice of praise to God, verses 13 through 15, to hear about the works of God, verses 16 through 19, and finally, to bless the Lord whose steadfast love endures forever. Now, we won't cover this psalm in totality this morning. In fact, I simply want to draw your attention to just one verse. It's verse 16, which says, Come and hear, all you who fear God, And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. In the spirit of Psalm 66, 16, I want to share three things with you today. Oh, I could share more. But I want to share three things with you today. Three truths that God worked in my heart while in Africa. Three ways that Africa is still changing me and why it matters to you, or for you. Before I do that, let me, let me quickly pray for us. Father, I thank you for our time today, and I thank you for uh, the many stories, the many testimonies represented here in this room. And I know that, that mine is just one, and even this morning, it's just a small part of that one. But I pray that in the sharing of what you have done, that there would be a connection made between my story and these people I love and between them and you, whom you love. Would you do that, I pray, for your name's sake. Amen. Three ways Africa is still changing me and why it matters to you. The first is this. Let go of the need to control and predict. Let go, let go of the need to control and predict. I like control. Scratch that. I love control. I love being in control. I love maintaining control over my circumstances even when I know I have none. You know what I mean? I plan my schedule and to-dos. I drive my wife crazy. (laughs) I keep lists and lists for my lists. I try to anticipate the unexpected and have backup plans in place. Spontaneity is not my strong suit. But never did the phrase, go with the flow, mean more to me than during my time in Africa. As you know, I believe that God clearly called me to Africa because I had already said no. I'd already said no in my heart and to those in the know when Moffat, unaware of this, contacted me personally to invite me to teach at this year's Impact in Dola Pastors Conference. Of all the people Moffat knows, of all the pastors he could have asked, he asked me which still amazes me. 
He asked me and another pastor from Arizona to teach together, which I took as a clear sign from God that I was destined to be in Africa this summer. And once the decision was made, I prayed and planned and prepared for months. It consumed me. I crafted six messages on discipleship, a few of which I shared with you. The plan was that I would launch the pastor's conference on Tuesday with three messages and then follow again on Thursday with three more. And Scott, my co-teacher from Arizona, would come in behind me on Wednesday and Friday and do the same. I would cover the what and why of discipleship while he focused on the who and how. That was the plan, and I was prepared. I was prepared. Now, it's at this point in the story where I learned a very good but very difficult lesson. I would love to tell you how I stood up on that first day and nailed it. That I spoke with an authority that could only be from God. As if speaking the very oracles of God and I watched men's heart melt before me. I'd love to say that the room was packed. We were expecting 225 plus pastors from all over Zambia and that each man was held with rapt attention. I'd love to say that the only thing greater than the reverberation of God's word in that room was the quiet hush that fell upon men's souls. But I can't say any of that because that first day fell woefully flat and uninspiring. Apparently, a scheduling snafu threw everything off kilter. Our conference coordinators had miscommunicated a very small (laughs) but very important detail. Rather than running Tuesday through Friday as scheduled, they announced on Facebook and in the printed literature that the conference began on Wednesday, not Tuesday, and continued through Saturday, not Friday. So when I stood at the pulpit at Indola Baptist Church on that Tuesday morning, Expecting to launch the conference and lay a foundation, there were not hundreds of pastors present in the room as we were expecting, but only about 40 who had gotten the word last minute that there had been a change in the schedule and they quickly rearranged their schedules to be there. I learned that none of the conference materials were complete or ready to distribute, and that the schedule for the day was entirely up in the air, literally, I kid you not, being thrown together as it was happening. That's not the way we do things here. (laughs) Furthermore, the bus 
that brought our conference team from the Northrise campus to the church arrived late, meaning that as I stepped off the bus, I was immediately being ushered to the pulpit. There was little time for meet and greet, for scoping the place and settling in. I had no time to acclimate to my surroundings and, the, uh, and to the schedule that was changing by the minute. In other words, nothing, and I, I mean literally, absolutely nothing was going according to plan. Now, how do you respond When you have prayed and planned and prepared with certain expectations in mind, with certain outcomes, only to arrive at the long-awaited moment to discover to your surprise and dread that your prayers and plans and preparations seem meaningless and a total waste of time. I battled, I battled and barely made it through that first day. Though I was gracious on the outside, I confess I was upset and frustrated with the conference coordinators who so clearly dropped the ball. I battled my own fears and doubts and insecurities as I tried to adjust on the fly. Here I was in a country I did not know, learning a culture I did not know, standing before men I did not know, while having to let go of what little I thought I knew. But in letting go... I found something I never expected. I found God and the opportunity to be present with God in what He was accomplishing in those unexpected moments. I found that it was not me showing up to Africa to bring God along for the ride. It was God already being in Africa and bringing me along for the ride. I found the need to trust God and trust lies at the core of relationship, our relationships, on the human level are like that, and same with God. Like Abram, who was called to a land that he did not know, and Moses, who was called to a task for which he felt unprepared, I had a choice to make. Either I could cling to my plans and preparations, or I could trust God in real time as the events were unfolding. Growing in your faith requires that you trust God. And listen, you know this. 
Our trust in God is usually developed when we're thrust into circumstances we didn't expect. It's in those moments when we learn that our faith lies not in risk-free, self-managed expectation, but but in God who is working towards certain outcomes that we may not see. So I encourage you, church, this morning to let go of your need to control and predict so that you're free to grab hold of God instead. Does that make sense? Number two. Celebrate the sufficiency of grace. Celebrate the sufficiency of grace. Now, before I left for Zambia, on the Sunday when you prayed for us, you brought us up in front of the church and you prayed for us and you sent us with blessing. After that service, Sarah Kenny shared with me what seemed like good advice. It was good advice. Having been to Africa twice before to Uganda, she told me to say yes to everything. She said to allow for the entire time I'm there to allow God to set the agenda trusting that whatever comes my way is from the Lord, so when asked to serve in some way, say yes. Don't think about it. Don't negotiate it. Don't look for an easier alternative, she said. Just say yes. So on Monday night of Impact Indola, Moffat asked me to lead morning chapel on Wednesday morning. Monday night, he comes to me and he says, can you lead on Wednesday morning, morning chapel? And with Sarah's uh, advice fresh on my mind, I said yes. Now, in the moment, I didn't want to say yes. Not because I didn't want to do it. I didn't mind doing it. It was because I didn't want to do it then. The timing was inconvenient for me. I knew that I'd be giving three uh, three one-hour messages on Tuesday and three more on Thursday. And so I was wanting Wednesday to be a day of rest and recuperation from speaking and preparing to speak. But I said yes. When Wednesday came... And I stood before the, I don't know, 80 or 90 or so impact member, impact team members and the various ministry teams. I stood before them with absolutely nothing to offer. I mean it. And I told them that. That I had nothing for them. I had nothing to offer them. 
that came from me. I tried putting something together Tuesday night, but I couldn't even think straight. Jumping from passage to passage and verse to verse, just grasping for anything convenient and applicable and especially easy to deliver. (laughs) But nothing made sense. Nothing resonated. Nothing came from the heart. I had nothing for them because I was running on empty. Sometimes saying yes means agreeing to exhaustion. Can you relate with that this morning? Now, it's one thing to be exhausted after a long day of ministry. In fact, that can be very rewarding because there's a sense that you gave it everything you had. But it's something quite another to be exhausted and empty at the beginning of the day when a full day of ministry awaits you. That doesn't feel rewarding at all. That just feels overwhelming. I know you can relate, and I suspect there are people even here today in this room who are feeling even right now exactly as I'm describing. Maybe by saying yes, even to good and noble things, you have agreed to exhaustion, physical and mental and even spiritual exhaustion without even knowing it. And it's not that you're complaining, you're not. You're just tired. You're just tired. Your job is taking it out of you. Parenting is taking it out of you. The workload at school is just taking it out of you. And you're in this place this morning feeling empty. You've got nothing, no reserves to draw from. Can I share with you what God shared with me that morning and what I shared with the team? morning chapel boast in your weakness boast in your weakness you are in in the exact condition you need to be and you are properly poised for something very, very special. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is dealing with weakness with the limitations of his faith or his flesh, with the limitations of his flesh. And he asked God to remove the limitation, remember, but God says no. Paul's persistent. He asks again. God says no again. Not to be deterred, Paul asks again. And God again says no. God says in verse 9 of that chapter, my grace, it's my grace 
that's sufficient for you. He's saying to Paul and to us in similar situations, what you need is not the removal of the weakness. What you need is my grace. My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness to which Paul, he got it, and he replies, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Boast in your weakness. Not merely accept your weakness. Not tolerate your weakness. Not understand or sympathize with your weakness. Certainly not coddle your weakness, but boast in your weakness. Now, what does it mean to boast? I'm asking, what does it mean to boast? To glory in. It means to, to be proud of. When you boast in something, like, look at this. I'm proud of this. It means to celebrate. Paul, Paul even said that he would boast all the more gladly, suggesting that we should continually and happily boast in our weakness. Why? Because boasting in your weakness is the way to find strength. Boasting in weakness means celebrating the sufficiency of grace. I want to encourage you this morning, as God did me, by reminding you that God doesn't need you at full strength today. Did you hear that? God does not need you at full strength today. He doesn't need your strength at all or your reserves. Actually, He doesn't want you trusting in your strengths, in your strength or in your reserves, because to the degree that you rely on your own strength, you cease to rely on Him. That Wednesday morning was a turning point for me. I could tell that even in those moments in chapel, and even now as I stand before you, I could tell that this was a message that the people needed to hear. And it didn't come from me. And I had people on the impact team telling me that morning, and then when we reconvened for dinner that night, how God used that word to really not only just get them through the day, but to help them face the day with grace. And on Thursday, the next Thursday, when I stood to, to, at the pastor's conference and I stood to preach my final three messages, it was night and day. I had unction and power in the pulpit as the Holy Spirit was just tangibly present in the room. My sixth and final message that afternoon was almost, I say this loosely, but almost an out-of-body experience as I opened up to these men boasting in my weakness as a pastor and challenged them to do the same 
and every eye was fixed, some with tears. Every heart was moved. Every man found fresh supplies of God's love. If the only reason, I mean this, I've said this to a few people, if the only reason why God sent me to Africa was to preach my sixth and final message, it was worth it. When this service is over, and you head home, and then tomorrow you begin another week of work or school, tending to the family, paying the bills, fixing the broken dishwasher, whatever it is, you have a choice to make. Either you can muster whatever you have left in the tank and run on fumes, or you can be honest with who you are and where you're at and allow Christ to minister to you not only in your strength, but especially in your weakness. For it's when you're weak in this way and celebrating the sufficiency of grace that you are most strong. And then third and finally, the third truth I want to leave you this morning is this. Equip and empower the next generation. Equip and empower the next generation. As I mentioned, the theme of the pastor's conference was discipleship. And all my preparations and during my time there speaking on the subject, God reinforced in me the importance of discipleship and my love for it. the joy of learning from others and passing on to others what you have learned. In 2 Timothy 2, we read about this very thing. Now, Paul never uses the words disciple or discipleship in these verses, but that's exactly what he's getting at. Paul was Timothy's disciple, and to Timothy he said... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now catch this. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now let's not miss what's going on here. It's not just that, that Timothy was to teach, but that he was to teach with the clear objective that those he taught would teach others also. Entrusting to others, the sense of what I have passed on to you, you entrust, entrusting to others implies giving something away. Or passing it on. In other words, Paul passed on to Timothy what he had already received. 
including his knowledge and life experience. Timothy then passed on what he received from Paul and others in his life who had invested in him as Paul did. And those who received from Timothy were expected to pass on to others still who would in turn continue passing along all of Christ and the Christian experience that had been entrusted to them. You see that? The takeaway here is that Paul, simply by discipling Timothy, was equipping and empowering future generations. Scott, my co-teacher, you saw some, there were some clips of him in the video, my co-teacher from Arizona, he shared a powerful illustration in one of his sessions, and I want to share it with you. He talked about how much he loved Joshua of the Old Testament, how Joshua is one of his heroes. Joshua is one of my heroes. How many of you like Joshua of the Old Testament? I mean, Joshua is the man. Joshua was a good man and a godly man and a strong and courageous man and a man of faith and integrity. Joshua did some incredible things during the course of his life, including how how he led God's people into the promised land. But Joshua made one colossal mistake that brought devastating consequences, and we rarely even see it when we read our Bibles. The mistake concerns not what he did, but what he failed to do. Which can be found in the opening pages in the book of Judges. Judges opens with Joshua's death. By this time, the people have taken possession of the promised land, and we're told in chapter 2 how they, this is so good, how they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. The people had been blessed by God and were living in the bounty of that blessing. They were glorying in the goodness of God and they were glorifying God. But then the story takes an unexpected turn. Follow along with me as I read from chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals 
and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, those of you who have read Joshua, uh, Judges, those of you who have read through Judges, what's the phrase that we find repeated throughout the book of Judges? How were the people of God described in the book of Judges? Stiff-necked. Everyone did right what was in everyone did right in their own eyes. The grand mistake made by Joshua, and I love Joshua. The grand mistake made by Joshua and the others of his generation was that they failed to disciple the next generation. And in just one generation, the people of Israel went from celebrating the goodness of the Lord to totally abandoning the Lord. They did not pass on what had been passed to them. Joshua's colossal mistake was that he didn't prepare the next Joshua. He didn't invest spiritually in the next generation by discipling those who'd carry on the work once he was gone. You see, Moses discipled Joshua. When you read the life of Moses, especially uh, as it pertains from Egypt, from that time between Egypt and Canaan, when you read the life of Moses, it seems that Joshua is always there. Wherever Moses went, we find Joshua. Because Moses was investing in Joshua. And even though Moses didn't cross into the promised land with the people, he had wonderfully and adequately prepared them for it, he'd prepared Joshua and effectively passed the baton. You know, one major challenge, I sat down at dinner one time with uh, Dave Murray. Dave is the head of the board of trustees for Northrise here stateside. I sat down with Dave Murray and we were just talking about things and then we began to talk about what's next. And he said, one major challenge facing Northrise University today is preparing for life without Moffat and Doreen. You see, Northrise is their dream. And God has done far more than they ever imagined. But the day is coming when they will no longer be able to do what they do. They keep an amazing schedule. I mean, they are on the run all the time. And yet you never feel like they're on the run. The day is coming when they will no longer be able to do what they currently do. Furthermore, the day is coming when they will be out of the picture entirely. And the students at Northrise at that time, the only connection they'll have with the Zimbas is maybe a picture on the wall or a brief bio in school literature. And the Northrise team is preparing today for that day. 
because they understand they understand that that their responsibility to minister to future generations even when the the founders are out of the picture preparing for life without the Zimbas so that the mission itself will carry on and continue to thrive. I can speak to this on a parenting level. Isn't it true that parents want more for their children? I mean... Come on, parents, isn't it true that we want our children to know and experience even more what we have known, and even more than what we have known and experienced? We want them to surpass us, don't we? We want them to exceed us. We want to be like, like a launching pad. And so, so much of parenting, as you know, is you're just equipping them year by year. You're equipping them and ultimately you're empowering them to go out into the world and to trust God. To obey God. And to love the work of God. And to make a difference in the world. So at the conference, there's a very well-respected pastor gets up on the very last day of the conference, right before we're ready to close. He's a very respected Zambian pastor. Jim, do you remember his name? I forget his name. Uh, I remember his son. Right, so he gets up, and again, very well, he's been pastor for like 40 years. And you can tell. You can tell by the way that the other Zambians are responding to this man that he is well-respected. And he gets up before the conference. Now, again, we've been talking about discipleship, about passing the baton, about training the next generation. And he says, I've been sitting here all week hearing about this, and I have a story to share. He said, I've recently realized that I need to pass the baton. And then he calls his son up. And his son, if I had to guess, is somewhere in his mid to late 20s. And so now you've got father and son here standing at the pulpit together. And he says, about a year ago, I passed the mantle of leadership to my boy. Not because I can't do it anymore. I can. But because I've recognized that he's ready. And he needs opportunity. He needs the freedom and the encouragement to go for it. And because, and this is what he said to these other Zambian pastors, and because I've realized that my son is able to reach today's generation in ways far better than me. And we sat together and we just celebrated and we prayed and we sang. And it was wonderful to see 
to, to visibly be sitting in the front row and see the pastor say, I'm doing what we're talking about. And it was absolutely the right decision. People, I think in the same way, we need to bring that mentality into the church and into our disciple-making relationships so that the up-and-coming generation will not only learn from us, but even exceed us by God's grace. And what they need sometimes is not just your... What they need sometimes is not just your knowledge. They need that. Not just your experience. They need that. What they need sometimes is just your approval and encouragement. They just need someone they admire and look up to. Mom and dad and and this person they've looked at for years across the church. They just need that person to come to them and say, I believe in you, you're ready, and the time is now. How can I help you? And we need to bring, I'm convinced, in our discipling efforts, we need to bring that mentality into the church and into our relationships where we're asking ourselves, who in my life can I learn from and who can learn from me and how do I become equipped and how do I equip and empower others? So I have a challenge for you. I want to challenge you to find to find, don't wait for them to come to you because it'll probably never happen. Find and make relationships where you are growing as a follower of Christ while helping others to grow as well. And then in particular, in particular, I want to speak to those of you who are middle-aged and older I want to challenge you and encourage you to reach out to those who are a generation or two behind you and invest in them. Mentor them. Equip them. Encourage them and ultimately empower them to take the baton. I love Joshua, but that he did not prepare the next generation, that was a colossal mistake. Now, I could go on. These are just some of the ways that Africa is changing me. I could talk about the humility I witnessed and the genuine joy that comes when putting others first. I could talk about worship and how, oh my, our African brothers and sisters, they worship with their whole selves. And there's incredible freedom they experience because of it. I could talk about diversity and the value of celebrating diversity within the body of Christ, including racial, 
political and even theological diversity. I could talk about serving locally and why making positive contributions to a church's neighboring community is key to its mission. I could talk about the value of team and serving together, about uniting around a common cause. I could talk about creation. Oh my, could I talk about creation and the glory of God I beheld in creation? And I could bend your ear talking about the immense privilege it was to serve with my oldest daughter and how proud I was and am of her. Although there were at least half a dozen occasions where she thought why she was my where they people thought she was my wife. <laughs> and that really creeped us both out. <laughs> so weird. It is so weird when you're sitting with your daughter and you sit down next to someone and she and they think she's your wife. And you're oh man, that's so weird. I could talk about all these things and more. But these three life-changing realities let go of the need to control and predict celebrate the sufficiency of grace and equip and empower the next generation are what God has given me to share with you today. And I've titled this message Transferable Truths because I'm now passing them on to you. God gave them to me and I'm now passing them on to you so that you can apply them and pass them on to others who will do the same. This is the power of personal testimony that lies at the heart of disciple-making. So, Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you, what he has done for my soul. Amen. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for, well, my goodness, what an amazing experience I was privileged to receive. Thank you for a congregation that supports me and sent me. And Abby and Jim and Jan as well. Thank you for the joy in being part of what you are doing here and there. And I pray that these things that you've impressed upon me and I've now shared with these dear folks, I pray that you would do the work in their lives too for their good, for the good of future generations and to the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.